Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. If you're looking for a new podcast on the creative process, I'd like to recommend Beyond the Studio, a podcast for artists. Beyond the Studio explores the work that happens behind the scenes for visual artists, makers, and creative freelancers, focusing on how they're supporting and sustaining themselves and their creative work. Co-hosted by visual artist Nicole Muller and Amanda Adams, Beyond the Studio features honest conversations with artists, makers, and financial experts on the business of being an artist and strategies for navigating the unique challenges of making a living creatively. Subscribe to Beyond the Studio wherever you listen to podcasts. The beautiful thing is not only did we get a great uh, reception at the show, but I got a ton of emails and LinkedIn and pings from designers and artists all over the world, actually, that had come to Milan and said, thank you for showing what we do matters. And, you know, because I think creativity, it's not just what it does for you, the maker, which I think it's super important for our health to express ourselves through creativity, but also the effect we have on others in terms of the objects we make, the things we surround ourselves with. You are listening to Change Lab, conversations on transformation and creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, president of Art Center College of Design. As Google's vice president of hardware design, Ivy Ross is breaking new ground in the physical world for a trillion dollar company synonymous with building tools for navigating the virtual one. Since assuming the role in 2014, she's been tasked with translating a corporate identity consisting of a primary colored logo and blinking cursor into three-dimensional products and environments that are inviting, accessible, and add value to people's lives in ways big and small. Ivy oversees the team responsible for Google's entire eye-catching suite of curvy pastel hue devices, including the Pixel Phone and Nest Home safety system. And she's also the creative visionary behind Google's first retail store, which debuted this past summer in New York City. It takes a special kind of moxie to forge ahead with a plan to open up to the public during a time when many stores were still shuttered. But Ivy is nothing if not brave. 
In fact, I'd go so far as to say that she's a true iconoclast who understands the value in bringing unconventional thinking to bear on high stakes challenges. I've had the great pleasure of getting to know Ivy through her role as Art Centre trustee. During our time together, we quickly discovered a kinship that transcended our shared investment in the college and even our roles as leaders within our respective organizations. Ivy and I connected around a shared interest in the role the imagination plays as a catalyst for change, particularly when combined with the physical act of making and doing. We explored the opportunities the pandemic has presented to improve our connection to each other and to the planet, our shared interest in the work of Carl Jung, and how creativity can be a portal to accessing the life we're meant to be living, even when it's not the one society has laid out for us. Please enjoy my conversation with Ivy Ross. So good of you to do this. I'm, I'm excited for our listeners to learn about you and the wonderful ways in which you move through the world. And I, I thought I would begin by this passing comment you made about the pandemic. It was so beautifully Ivy. And I just want to <laughs> open with that. And what you said, and I'm paraphrasing here, is Mother Nature sent us to our rooms this is regarding COVID, and said, now don't you come out until you think about what you have done the last 50 years. I have heard a lot of comments about <laughs> the <laughs> pandemic, but I love that. Yeah. And don't come out till you've thought about what you've done the last 50 years and have a more balanced perspective. I mean, I really do think this has been a virus of consciousness. And I, you know, I am very sad for people who have lost their lives it shouldn't have to come to this, but I do think there's no accidents that the only way the universe could get our attention to go within and reflect what we've been doing for the sake of optimizing our world has cost us. And we really need to think about what's important, what makes us happy, recognize that as we're killing the universe, we're killing ourselves because we are nature. And I've seen some remarkable reflections and changes come from this time, including the great resignation. You could say that's positive mm -hmm. or that's negative, but if people mm -hmm. aren't in the right place doing the right things, it's positive. The other thing during this time that I did with my team was about, I think it was two weeks into the pandemic, we had our first all hands. I said, I want us all to write fairy tales from the future. And they kind of looked at me and I said, you know, I believe we're the creatives of the company and what we need now is not innovation, but to use our imagination or reimagine what we want our lives as humans sharing this planet to be. And, you know, fairy tales have a couple of givens. They always start with once upon a time. They always have a happy ending and there's usually a moral or a lesson. So why don't we all fast forward, you know, 
five to 10 years from now, looking back and telling the fairy tale, once upon a time there was a pandemic and see what we might want to learn from this. And it was remarkable. Mm. It was about 75 stories from 300 people. Writers grabbed designers, animators, and started to work together with people they had never worked together before in the company and created some very compelling stories, which I then had about 150 books printed up called Fairy Tales from the Future and gave those books to some of the executives in the company and said, before we start saying, let's go back to things as normal, <laughs> usual, would love for you to read these fairy tales. Yeah, and it's so interesting. And again, it says so much about you, how you turn to a creative take on what was occurring and allowed the imagination of your team to come through, to grapple with it in ways that were different, took in other elements, thought perhaps as you did in that lovely little vignette of Mother Nature putting us in our rooms about how, you know, disease is manifest somehow in, in the world or sometimes in our bodies. But it really is wonderful, I think, to, you know, use imagination to find our way through it. Your story about the fairy tale leads me to think about collectivity, which is something I know very important to you. And the first time you and I met, we bonded over our shared interest in Carl Jung. And I wanted to, early on here, invite you to talk about the power of collectivity and its relationship to the creative process, but really to human thriving as our early moments of this conversation have already given evidence of. Yeah. You know, I was always a curious child and I still am a curious adult. And so I ask a lot of questions. And I got into Jungian psychology because I was very curious about what is this thing called mind? What are dreams? What is all this about? And I'm a bit like Alice in Wonderland. When I get interested in something, I go down the rabbit hole. And so got very engaged in, this is while I was in college, reading everything he wrote. And this idea that I think he said the mission of the 20th century was for all of society to get conscious because through him, I understood this idea of the collective unconscious that, you know, we are together creating this reality. And so it's what we all dream together. The aggregation of that is what comes into being. And so I kind of early on understood, wow. So if we all use our imagination for good, or keep imagining the possibilities that we want to see as a society, we can kind of dream these things into being or create them. And I think it's helped me in my role as a leader to understand some of the principles that Carl Jung talked about and, and also in having empathy for different people, diversity of perspectives, which helps in creativity. Mm -hmm. But it was a great grounding in the collective unconscious and conscious. <laughs> I realized that we are here to each live the life that we're supposed to be living. You know, and part of that adventure or journey is to 
be in touch enough with ourselves, and I think creativity helps that, to know who we are, to live the life we're supposed to be living, not necessarily the life that society has imposed because they've agreed this is the proper life. Some of my greatest reward comes from you know, leading creative teams and trying to give everyone the opportunity to find what that gift or passion is that they have and to be able to express it. Right. Let's see if this question makes sense to you, because I want to go deeper into this. And that's the idea that something creative happens in a collective or among a team that's different than when you're working solo. And I just don't mean the obvious things of, you know, oh, there's a diversity and abundance of skills with the collective and there's, but there's something that necessarily transpires when a collective, when a team is working together. I mean, you've done so much work on this. I'm just so curious about how you see the differences and what that kind of teamwork yields that working solo could never possibly expose. Yeah. Yeah. I started as an artist turned designer, got into the corporate world kind of by accident. It was never necessarily a desire of mine. But I think it was because I realize now the corporate environment is almost a petri dish of humanity within one contained space. And so when I first got into the corporate world, I had won a lot of awards individually, got my work into 10 museums and realized that life was about the journey, not about the end game. But with that, I was trying to think of when I'm my most creative by myself, what am I doing and how do I give those gifts to others and to and collective? And started observing, you know, when these three people work together or brainstorm, maybe nothing comes out of it. When these four people get together, you know, we spiral to new places. And I've been studying sound and vibration for 40 years. So I started looking at, you know, are we on different wavelengths? Does some of this, does some of this happen when we're all on the same wavelength and that we kind of click in and we, we tap into each other's creativity and just start bouncing off of it. And so I did a lot of, um, experiments actually in companies using uh, some sound techniques to get us all in the same vibration by playing certain music in the background so that we're starting at the same place. So our ideas just can go to new heights together. And you know, I, I used to uh, bring an improvisational teacher to my team because this idea that you can work together and not judge, but you know, use the technique of yes and, and kind of accept what someone throws out and then build on it. And I think I've seen the greatest ideas and products come to life when that is used, whether it's consciously or unconsciously, that people are in this state of pure openness and creativity, no judgment. Right. And as things are being tossed out, shown, created, other people add without judgment. And you finally, you arrive at some place that you never could have as an individual. Right, right. Totally. And as a theater person, you can imagine how powerfully I resonate with that. Yes. You know, and when I was thinking about this in my preparation for, for our conversation today, I related it to this piece that runs through my book on Make to Know, that when you're 
working to manifest a vision, you're narrowing your experience. When you're deliberately cultivating a space of not knowing, you're opening up possibility. And it's one thing to do that as an individual, but it seems that when we're in the collective, that's a structure that's imposed because until all the pieces of that collective are working together and understanding it, you are necessarily in a place of we don't know. Right. And it kind of, you know, guarantees that that will happen. Yeah. And we get to the resolution together in this dynamic process, real time being present. No, I read the book and I think it's absolutely fantastic and its theories really speak to me. I think you have to be willing to step into the unknown to truly create. It's interesting, even in, you know, I've often thought about design versus art. You know, artists put a piece of their soul on a pedestal and in some ways hope that someone comes by and resonates with it, connects with it. I remember when I went to art school, people used to say, oh, in design, people tell you what to do. How could you do that? I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. (laughs) They give you boundaries. Here's the problem we're solving, what we want to solve for. Or they may give you the boundary of it can only cost $300 to make or whatever. And I actually find that more creative because if you're given those boundaries and then you all jump in with the same criteria but not knowing where it's going to end up and then knowing that you've solved a problem that millions of people or hundreds of people could uh, reap the benefits from you know it's that act of creation and creating together to solve problems and i think as creatives we're going to be called upon together to solve even bigger problems, mm-hmm. you know, as the world changes. And that's why I kind of ignited this idea of imagining imagination together, because I think we need to be social designers as well and yeah. use some of those same processes. And certainly this idea in the book of make to know, it, it is this discovery process, which life is, if you surrender to it, it's, it's really mirroring how one needs to approach life. Right, exactly. We make our lives. Mm-hmm. We make our right? lives, right? We make our yes. lives. Human <laughs> beings are fundamentally makers. Mm-hmm. And we can get stymied, as our students at Art Center do, by preoccupation with, I have to know it all. I have to have the vision. I have to have the steps. I have to have the goals, as opposed to a disciplined not knowing, a disciplined staying open, but having faith and confidence in what the creative capacity is, the making process that's going to lead you to know your life. Yeah, faith and confidence is imperative. I think that's the element it takes, especially faith, because yeah, jumping into the unknown and being obsessed with this need to succeed at it, what people don't realize is that's not how you succeed at it. If you stay open and curious and let yourself lead yourself or let your hands lead in conversation with your mind, that's when magic you know, happens. Right. And just to return to your point for a moment, which you've made in all kinds of different ways. And I think you and I talked about this a little bit about constraints and boundaries. And paradoxically, 
constraints can be interpreted as narrowing possibility. But in fact, what constraints do, I understand from you, from mm-hmm. designers, is constraints open possibility. Mm-hmm. And that gets back to improvisation, my own work in improvisation. Right? Improvisation just doesn't come out of nowhere. The momentary discovery happens within the context of that frame, right? Yes. But you can't just splatter all over the place. You need that frame. You need that tune that yeah. Miles Davis will riff off of. You need that context in which you're doing a theatrical improvisation that gives you at least a situation or grounds you in some context, even if it's a circle in the sand as Peter Brook did in Africa, right? It doesn't really matter, but that context and frame is there. Yeah. It's like almost in order, you need that frame in order to break out of it or or figure out how to be the most creative within it. Right. You know, And it kind of holds you so you're able to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's, a, it's almost like there's too many possibilities if you don't have it. So you cannot focus your creativity. Right. You know, right. It, it gets very scattered versus, you know, clear, or you kind of keep working at it within this framework. Right. I mean, I think you said this, was it when you were working with Avon, I think? And you said, you know, you're doing a mail order catalog or something like that. You said, give me the boundaries and I'll deliver. Oh my God, you remember that story. No, I- Yeah. Yeah, I was known as a jewelry designer at the time and Avon had bought Tiffany's and they were starting a gift catalog. And the vice president called me up and said, you know, let me take you to lunch. I'd love for you to be head of our jewelry design department. I said, no, 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 I'm not interested in that. And he said, well, what are you interested in? I said, well, I would love to be able to expand, spread my wings. I could design anything if you give me the boundaries of what I can and can't do within any given material. But there it is. Yeah, Yeah, I could design in glass. I could design stuffed animals. I mean, just give me my boundaries and let me loose. And so, you know, when people look at my resume and say, I don't understand, you know, you've been head of design for Mattel Toys and... Calvin Klein and all these product categories. I said, it doesn't, I have to like the what I'm making, but it's more the process and the doing the process with others that uh, is what, where my joy comes from. Hmm. And I've purposely never repeated what I've done twice. If I've done toys, I've done it. Now I'd love to try something else. I want to design cars. I want to, you know, work with people to create houses. I mean, I will never do the same thing twice because I think there's such learnings that come out of the process and boundaries applied and constraints to different categories that I want to take me with me and see how that plays out in a different situation. But it strikes me, and this is true for me personally, but it strikes me for you that the fundamentals are the same. Oh, definitely. It's the context that changes. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And I, therefore the new learning that comes with that. Exactly. Yeah. Because you're holding something steady, like we talked about, which is like another version of the constraints, which is the process. You know, I love surprising myself. And I think mm. I think this idea of surprising oneself is part of creativity, is the joy of living a life well lived, right? Is to constantly surprise yourself and learn more about yourself. Can I take you back to Mattel for a minute? Can you talk about the Platypus Project? Yeah, sure. So 
I had a few hundred people working for me in an airplane hangar and, you know, we were getting the pressure, you know, quicker, cheaper, faster. And I'm like, oh my God, there's got to be a better way to do this. So I created this program called Project Platypus. It leveraged everything I had learned, sound, vibration, something called matrix leadership, which was understanding how all the parts equal the whole. And, you know, as individuals, we are a collective. The word corporation has the word body in it, corpus. And so I always think of a group of people as a full body. And so naturally, someone just tends to be the brain and someone else the heart and someone else the blood that connects the ideas. And so really ended up developing this 12-week program, uh, which I named Project Platypus because the platypus was something of parts put together, you know, different animals put together that never should have been. And it was this premise, first of all, the premise was of the 12 weeks, if the first two weeks we spent the time to learn to trust each other, learned who we really were, these 12 creative people, mm-hmm. didn't produce anything, but spent the time together. And during those two weeks, I brought in my improvisational artist and we learned how to add and accept and how to just be free to build on each other's ideas. I brought in a woman, she was actually Tibetan, studying to be a Lama, but she taught us about this matrix leadership idea. I brought in my sound guys. We were gonna solve people's problems, which is what design is. We had to learn how to observe, deeply observe, so that when we wanted to design a new toy for a kid, we'd go to a playground or a birthday party and really observe why they laughed, what made them happy. And I think it's what creative people do best, right? We walk around in the world taking things in at this unconscious or conscious level. And then we put it through our filter when we go to this place of unknown Mm -hmm. and all of these things start synapses connecting together. So this program was around two weeks First week was let's make the bonds and connections and trust each other. The second week was let's all learn things together because I think there's something about when you're all on the even playing field and you learn things together, there's a bond. And so then the next 10 weeks, we went through this process of creating the answers within constraints that were thrown out. It's like, okay, we want a toy line that's funny for Mattel that you know has to cost this amount of money, have 12 objects in it. And... It was amazing that we we kind of lived with each other for these 10 weeks. We were isolated. I, I got a building across the street from the regular Mattel building because I think environment matters. And I created this space that had lots of light. The, the flooring was almost like nature, outdoors, grass. And we really, our minds started to meld together. You know, when you're in a, a different place together, you learn new things and you feel safe and connected, and you've learned these techniques of how together you're better, Yeah, it gets super exciting. So, Which goes to our earlier question of creating solo and creating in, in a collective environment. Totally. Right? And what happened yeah. is we were more productive because at first people were panicking, but Ivy, oh my God, we haven't done anything in the first two weeks. We haven't produced anything. I said, I maintain this is a master experiment that If we set ourselves up right these first two weeks, at the next 10 weeks, we're going to nail it. We're going to go, we're going to be more productive, be happier. And so sure enough, it 
worked. I ended up winning the chairman's award for sustainability of the whole company. I, I, it became an ongoing program. <laughs> and I would run these sessions for three months at a time with a month break in between. But the best thing you'll, I think, appreciate this is women were getting pregnant with their husbands who they had been trying to, but because they were happier, their hormones were flowing differently. You know, when you feel seen for who you are, you're in the groove of the creative flow, you know, your physiology changes. And so literally out of Project Platypus, you know, all of a sudden we'd have out of 12 people of which <laughs> half were women, three, you know, three of them would become pregnant when they had been trying for years. And so mm. I still in that, in the belly of the platypus, some of the notes are thanking me for their children. But it was really about how to create together in a joyful way while, you know, and solve problems, really learning who each other, our gifts and talents and what we bring, what each of us was bringing, you know, at, to the table. And, and really it wasn't competition at all. It was learning to trust each other and have freedom. And I mean, we're designed to be social and we're, and I think it's, it just brought such joy to people. Well, thank you. Thank you for that story. And it gathers up exactly what I wanted when I was talking about your commitment to uh, teamwork and collective work and community and what that means and what that unleashes and what it unveils about the human spirit. And so in, in my efforts here, so delightfully to try to give to our listeners who Ivy is as she moves through the world, that's exactly <laughs> the, a story that does it so beautifully. <laughs> So let's talk about neuroaesthetics. And I have so many questions for you about that, but maybe for our listeners, if you wouldn't mind defining what neuroaesthetics is, and then we can get into some of its implications for how we work, how we create. Yeah, I mean, neuroscience is now proving that aesthetics matter. <laughs> they affect our physiology. So neuroaesthetics is something that it's not just making things look pretty, it's the things that alive in our senses. So smell, movement, color, light, music, sound. It's the things that us creatives and artists know intuitively, or we wouldn't be doing what we do. But the fact that neuroscience through new kinds of imaging in the brain can now show what's happening in some of these modalities, and especially multi-sensory experiences. There are now doctors in, London and Canada, they're writing prescriptions for certain patients to go to museums because they understand by standing in front of a, a painting that provokes new thoughts or brings awe or beauty into someone's life, what's happening in the brain, what neurotransmitters are being released and how important that is for our body. And I think we've become a bit flatlined <laughs> We've taken you know, some of the arts and these things that not only just make us feel alive, but are keeping us alive, have been pushed off as second-class citizen often. And we've been kind of in this optimization mode of some of the more cognitive functions when these arts, and, and, and I mean that from both being the maker, experiencing them, and the observer, you know, sitting in a theater, looking at, uh, paintings that 
make you think differently, like you've never thought before. All of these things are incredibly important for our health and well being. So, I started being interested in this when Susan Mag Salmon, who runs the Arts and Mind Lab at Johns Hopkins, reached out to me for me to be on her advisory board. And I remember when she called me, she said, we're, we're studying neuroaesthetics and we're looking for someone, you know, they had yo-yo man music. She said, I want you to be in design. I've been following your career. And I, my first reaction was, wait a minute, I, I know this affects everyone. She says, yeah, but now science is proving it. And I remembered when with meditation, until they could show the Dalai Lama's brain lighting up, People didn't, because they were like, I don't understand. You sit there and you empty your mind and that's good for you. <laughs> but then when they were able to show that actually there was a new region of his brain lighting up, all of a sudden, I think people believed it and seeing is believing. So I get it. So I said, oh my God, no, I totally agree with you. If we can let the world know that these things that we've all been putting our lives into matter and can really help us be healthy. I mean, that's extraordinary. So the first thing she and I did at the Milan Design Fair, we did something called the Space for Being in 2000, it was either 18 or 19, I'd have to look it up. But what was fascinating is we created these bands that people wore that had sensors in them. I worked with an architect, Suchi Reddy, and we created three different environments, three different rooms that used totally different aesthetics, purposely very different aesthetics. So different color, texture, different art. We had custom music, custom scent in each of these rooms. And they were each based on different sets of aesthetic principles. We had 10 people in each room for five minutes in silence. And we invited people to touch things, touch the art, the textures, the colors, just take it in in silence. And then I loved, we had these little palette cleansers, I called them, rooms in between that were you know, gray foam that were, the idea was to kind of metaphorically strip you of the sensory systems that you had just experienced. And you'd go to the next room and stay five minutes in silence there. And then the third room, then you took off the band in front of a group of band tenders, not bartenders, downloaded the data. And of course we showed you that we were deleting the data after we downloaded it, but we were able to then mirror back to the people who had had this experience, how their body was feeling in each of these three rooms, not what their mind was thinking, but their physiology. And the mm -hmm. objective, the algorithm we wrote was, in which room was your body the most at ease, you know, or the less stressed? I mean, there's a number of ways you could look at that. And we had to walk our talk. So of course, the way we showed the data was in this beautiful, artful, almost ink blot piece of art that showed where the moments were that you got excited versus the moments where you were not. And then we gave each participant a printout. It's like a piece of art of how their body the experiences, sensorial experiences that they had gone through in the room at which their body felt the most at ease, and then gave them a list of all the things that were in that room, you know, the colors, the textures, the music, the scent. And we had thought, well, this will be a failure if people go, I love this space, and sure enough, their body loved that space also, if it was always a match. But in at least, thank God, in at least half the cases, People were surprised by, oh, because cognitively, 
I liked that room, but my body clearly loved being in this room. Mm -hmm. The press was asking, you know, are you going to, is Google going to make these bands? I'm saying, no, 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 no. I don't want a world where you have to walk around and have a piece of technology or a band tell you how you feel. This was about letting people know that we are embodied beings and we're feeling all the time and that we have agency over what we surround ourselves with. And that affects our body. And that's the, you know, the message. And then also there is no, because of course then people wanted to know, well, well, what's the right color? Is it blue or what's the right music? And I said, no, 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 this is very personal. You know, what's right for you, you is different than me. And that goes back to living the life that only we're here to live and we're unique beings. The beautiful thing is not only did we get a great uh, reception at the show, but I got a ton of emails and LinkedIn and pings from designers and artists all over the world, actually, that had come to Milan and said, thank you for showing what we do matters. And, you know, because I think creativity, it's not just what it does for you, the maker, which I think it's super important for our health to express ourselves through creativity, but also the effect we have on others in terms of right. the objects we make, the things we surround ourselves with. Right. And just hearing now these two stories of the Platypus Project and this project in Milan, I hope I'm not begging the obvious to say you're clearly blurring the lines between the maker and the observer, right? That there is a creative process, there is a discipline of openness, there is a need for constraint, there is a embodied knowing what the body knows on all sides of the ledger and not simply in one camp or another. I mean, th this is... Again, back to the notion that it's a practical difference, but it's not a fundamental. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the more people understand that they need to have this in their lives, but whether they're one or the other yeah. is really important to me. And what it does in either of those cases, how it's our birthright. You know, I started interviewing indigenous tribes and I the word art was not in their culture. They didn't need to have a separate word because it was woven into the fabric of their being, right? And that's yeah. our that's how we began. It's storytelling, which was theater and dancing and symbols yeah. were art, music, sounds, drum beat. I mean, all of these things we're talking, I'm talking about were absolutely part of us in the beginning. And we've kind of lost it. We've put it aside and said, you know, this is only for talented people, or I don't have time to go to the theater or a museum. And really, if you look back and in and when we're, you know, a fetus in the womb, I mean, water and bone conduct sound. And so uh, I had a sound teacher that played a recording to show us when we're a little mass floating in liquid. For nine months, we're in a symphony of music. I mean, we're hearing our mother's heartbeat, digestion, blood sweat. We are in a sonic bath. And so no wonder we crave, you know, a music is so, moves us, is so such an emotional trigger. So these things are almost our birthright and you have to work hard to keep them in your life.
Can you tell us a little bit about the Google retail store in Chelsea that just opened? It seems like maybe it's chapter two, maybe the the next iteration of what you were doing in Milan, right? Yeah, well, you know, Google hardware was late to the game. You know, Apple was there, Samsung was there, and they had established their aesthetics. And when we all looked at it, we consciously looked at it and stood back and said, we're not this, we're not this, who are we? And why, you know, how do we differentiate ourselves but be true to who Google is? And we all felt like, wow, what needs to happen is things need to get softer, more tactile. We're craving that, right? Maybe because of a lot of the hard shapes the technology got birthed with. So it was only natural that as we learn more after the Milan exhibit, the opportunity to create a space that would house these physical objects that were softer, more natural, use color, light, texture. You know, how do we translate that into a space that is in resonance or consistent with that? And so Suchi and I and some of my team created the space, the house for our products. And one of the criteria was really also to make sure it reached this lead um, platinum level because we're very conscious yeah. of sustainability. And yeah. I'm very proud and, and Nate on my team worked hard. We not only got lead platinum, but like one of the highest levels is very few retail stores that have achieved it. But the most important thing is people literally walk in and the floor is a material that's woven out of recycled plastic bottles with a, a mat underneath. So you come off the concrete floor and you immediately feel Ah, relaxed. And now I don't know too many technology stores that you, you know, your first feeling is one of calm, right? And then the <laughs> idea was, you know, create this calm canvas, but then a place where people wanted to explore and be curious about the products. And so we did use some of these neuroesthetic principles, you know, which are not just how things look, but how they feel and the effect they're going to have on your body. The walls are a veneer wood that's almost a fleshy tone, you know, not bright white, not like a refrigerator, but very calming. And then yet you have this technology that's super playful. So it was a great opportunity to, you know, I almost think of what I'm doing now at Google and I'm very grateful for is, is like really exploring this world of fractals where everything, you keep building out bigger and bigger, but it's the same principles are applied and the same team and creativity, you know, once you establish those relationships and you're consistent, the kind of the vision just, you could see how it's like throwing a pebble in the water. It just keeps expanding. And, you know, we really wanted a place because we sell our Google hardware to other retailers, but we wanted a place, a house to house our products in the spirit in which they were designed, quite frankly, and see what does that create or offer to our consumers? You know, is it a different experience in a space like that? So one, one of the things I'm, I'm so curious about is, as you know from the book, your fellow trustee, Tim Kobe, was the lead designer for the Apple Store. And that the book begins with the story of how that was a complete make-to-know process, that you know, you'd think that it would have sprung from the head of jobs like Athena from Zeus. But in fact, it was this iterative process of trying to work it through and making it in order to discover it. And I'm wondering if that was true for you 
Yeah, well, two things. We had done pop-up stores before over the years. So yeah, as did they. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, right. Yeah. So you learn a lot. I mean, it's a great way to not yet put a stake in the ground, but to put something out there, learn, observe, and take what you've learned from those pieces, as well as I do agree it's an inner process. And, you know, we haven't made a commitment yet to further stores, but if we do, we're already looking at and and um, starting to think about, okay, now that we know what we know, what might we do differently? And that's the exciting thing, I think, about the creative process is building on. It's like the yes and, right, that we talked about in, it's exactly in improv. That, yeah, right. And so it's it's exciting when you then then your foundation becomes slightly different. And then how do you build on top of that? So I think that is part of the creative process. It's never really done. It's just like what's been great, even with our products, like the Nest thermostat, I think the thermostats are where we're being able to offer them for less money and they're more beautiful. And people say, how do you do that? And it's because the team had already gone through one iteration and they've learned so much that they can then actually simplify things even more from the experience and offer something more beautiful with even tighter constraints. Right. And those those words and that relationship focus on experience and beauty and the beauty of experience is a something I think that does overlap with what Tim did with the Apple store. But also, I think you've taken it to a very in, into a different place, too. And it's a different level, too. It seems that that was that was the context in a way to discover what the beauty of experience could be, mm-hmm. how the right, mm-hmm. how that. All those things that you described about the store and the interaction of the, I want to say, you know, it's a, it's a consumer, but it's an observer. It's a participant in a museum experience. It's it's really trying to understand how 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 a retail environment can yeah. encompass and you know that I had early on actually from Mattel Toys learned and read about Howard Gardner's uh, work on the different ways we learn as children. Right. And really, I also think there's, so So, for example, the store was intentionally, as you say, there's one moment that people have said is almost like a museum where the products are all on a wall backlit and just with their name so that you can get like a perspective of just the visual impact. And you could clearly, it's like having, you know, in the museum case, vases through the century. So you could compare and look at them together and, and, and then there's other places, these sandbox rooms where you can literally sit and play in a mock living room with the product. So everyone, the idea was we were testing and wanted to make it a bit of an exploratorium where you could experience the products in different ways because different people want different experiences and they walk into a store for different reasons. Mm. And some people just want to come in, they know what they want and they take it off a shelf. How do we make it a place of discovery for people who discover differently? Nice. And But all the while kind of putting it in a warm, comfortable environment that makes you want to stay a while and play. Yeah. So as a way to wrap up, I wanted to talk about very, very quickly about four principles just things I feel like I've learned from you. They're Ivyisms. They're little bits of wisdom. We've touched on just about all of them in this conversation already, but it would be a great kind of 
way to bring it all together. So I'll just say it one by one. And after I say the first, you know, you can just respond and free associate on them for a moment. And then I'll move to the next one. If that's okay sure. with you. Let's play. Let's play. <laughs> let's play. Okay. Tension of opposites and how you work with a sense of a, the tension of opposites. Well, I think that's all there is in life. I think life is a tension of opposites, dark and light, you know, play. And by the way, the opposite of play is not work, it's depression. Let's put it this way. I embrace the tension of opposites and find beauty and joy in it. Is it a way into the uncertain world? Is it an entry point? Well, it's a way of being comfortable. Yeah, I think with the unknown, because if you accept that the world and life is tension of opposites, you know that if you hit something dark, there'll probably be something light, you know, the light will shine on it. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, you know, once you accept that, I think it's funny, I sign a lot of my emails to the team, your fearless leader, because I, I feel fearless in my exploration, curiosity of the world. Is there a difference between attention of opposites to you and I'm veering into my own interests here, accommodation of ambiguity of human experience on the one hand, or even a kind of Whitman notion of the fact that we contradict ourselves, that's okay, we're multitudes. Is that all part of it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We need both. There's, it's both within us and around us, right? And so honoring that within us is, is important and that you may not know there's some things you can control, some things you can't control. It's like finding the beauty in both and. Lovely. Second one is, which I love, is your notion of grazing mm. and what grazing is. Uh, time to graze as an essential part of any kind of process. Yeah, I forgot about that. I actually read that, God, it was in a book about, a funny book about cows. Was it by Seth? I don't remember, but it talked about the importance of grazing. And I use that in Project Platypus when I say you need time to take things in. If you immediately ask for production of something, even, you know, milk from a cow, there needs to be the time to graze, to actually let that. And, and there's a mindset, to, and I think we don't do this in companies. And that's what I mean about the conditions under which creativity exists. Like, I know even in some product development processes, the PMs will say, product managers, we want to see this in two days. I'm like, let my team just do their thing. Would you please for two days? Just they need their time to graze. <laughs> mm. And then let's see mm. what comes out of it. So it's so important. And everyone has their own process for creativity. I have a way I have to clean my debt. I have to get myself in a certain frame of mind. And I honor different people have to do different things, you know, to prepare to go to this place of the unknown. And it's important in our lives as well. It's like doing and being, right? Being is the grazing. Yeah, and, and nourishing different ways in which that manifested in my conversations with the artists and designers for the book. One was in particular, Rebecca Mendez talking about waiting, not as a passive exercise, but waiting as, as a significant piece of what the creative process can be and, and, and as an active waiting, really. Absolutely. At, and, which I think is so beautiful. Yeah, it is. Well, that goes back to having trust and confidence that it will come. Right. Right. And right. being able to sit there and know you, you don't know what the next move on the paper or it should be or whatever, but you trust it will come if you just wait. 
Right. And, and then the other piece of it too, which finds its way throughout the book is it's not so much finding the idea, manifesting the vision as it is create. This is what you've said 50 times already mm-hmm. this morning. It's not so much manifesting the vision as it is creating the conditions for discovery. Absolutely. It's all about the conditions. <laughs> it's, you know, wait, the one thing I want to say about that, it's, it, again, I always look for the uh, natural world for clues about some of these things. And if you think about it, it's like tilling the soil, right? The conditions under which an incredible garden can grow, you know, you, yeah, you know, it, yeah, it's yeah. like preparing the soil. There's things we do. And then, and then you have to have patience as those different things sprout up. <laughs> right. And the waiting too, mm-hmm. that happens, right? So the third one, which you, you touched on a few minutes ago, but which I think is so important is uh, the spirit in which something is created is transmitted to the consumer and wanted you to comment on that. Yeah, I think the purity, people, you know, I've studied vibration and everything's vibration. We're vibration, physical things are vibrating atoms. And I did this little experiment also. Some of the the toys at Mattel that we came up, you know, Project Pliopus were done in the spirit of, you know, we loved what we were doing together. Those toys won parenting awards. I mean, so I think that the the feeling and the emotion in which something is made, if it's done well, the recipient, the viewer, the user feels that. And I think that translates to even user experience on a screen, you know, the joy of it when someone was making this, do I feel that? So I think there's no hiding that. <laughs> right. And, you know, writers talk to me about when their writing is flowing, when it's honest, you know, readers know that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. When it's more mechanical, they also know it, right? Oh, absolutely. And may choose not to, even unconsciously, it just doesn't touch them in the same way. Yeah, vibration. So there's something about, yeah. right, there's something about what we do as creators that is, I mean, the whole mirroring piece is what I think I'm interested in. Here. Yeah, no, yeah. it's absolutely true. We feel, it's mirrored back to us, what the person was feeling when they created it. Which is a great segue to the last one, a little phrase of yours from design thinking to design feeling, which I mean, really is a great way to sum up everything we've talked about here. Yeah, and- I guess so. I guess so. I mean, I love design thinking did a lot for the field. I mean, it got the word design around the board table. And I think we have to operate from both our head and our heart. And for me, that's what design thinking and design, it's not either or, it's and both <laughs> design, design thinking and design feeling because we're, we are, someone once said this, but we are, we're actually feeling beings that think. People think that we're thinking beings that feel, but we're actually feeling beings that have learned to think. And if you, if you really think about that, and I think that's what neuroesthetics is about, we've really amplified the thinking part and we've put aside the, the feeling part and emotions are, are fantastic. We need them. Even the bad ones or the negative ones. We're feeling beings. Mm. Well, as a way of thanking you for this um, amazing conversation and this time, Ivy, I wanted to say to you, you open my mind and heart, but in the spirit of what you just said, I'm going to switch it around and say, you open my heart and mind. 
Aw, well, thank you. And really want to thank you for your time and for your insight and for your honesty and for your inspiration, really. It's been a joy to talk to you today. Oh, well, thank you so much. And thank you for the gift of mirroring back to me things I have said that have moved you in some way. That's a great gift. Change Lab is produced out of Art Center College of Design. I'd like to extend a special thanks to our small but mighty production staff, producer Christine Spines, co-producer Lauren Mahoney, editor Emily Van Bergen, and post-production supervisor and production consultant Christopher Olin. Please take a moment to support us. You can do this by heading to Spotify or Apple Podcasts to rate and review our show. And while you're at it, Share us with someone who is curious about the creative process. That's it for this week on Change Lab.